Hello and welcome to Medic in the Middle. Hello and welcome back to Medic in the Middle. Medic in the Middle is a podcast exploring a range of different topics, issues and articles. The podcast features a range of different pre-hospital and in-hospital specialties. In this episode, we are joined by American firefighter and EMT Jordan Goddard. Today, we discuss the day-to-day life of working as a firefighter and EMT in the USA and the similarities and differences of working in frontline healthcare between the USA and the UK. So without further ado, let's get stuck into this USA special podcast. Morning. Hello. How are you? How are you? Are you good? I'm doing, hanging in there. I just got back from the gym. <laughs> Can you hear me and see me all right and everything like that? Good. All good. All good. So, yeah, I mean, thanks for thanks for coming on um, and having a chat. Like, you know, I appreciate it. It's, it's eating into your free time as well. So. Oh, um, it's, it's what free time? Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. So I'm Tom anyway. Um, is it Jordan Goddard? Have I said it right? Yeah, it's just um, we have a space center called Goddard Space Center, so that's that's where we get that. You on rest days now? Then you you got your day off and stuff. Yeah, we have four days uh, after our tour, and so I'm on. I'm in the middle of that, so I still have another day after today before I go back. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you're essentially a firefighter slash EMT. Is that is that right? Yes. Uh, not everywhere is the same, but where I work, we have to be an EMT first. So whether or not we come in with that certification mm-hmm. or we acquire it while we are in the Fire and Rescue Academy, right. we have to pass that first and then we can become a firefighter. Right. Okay. So yeah, like shift patterns then. So you kind of alluded briefly to just like what your shift patterns are like. You said you're on tour and then you have like your rest days. Uh, like over here, for example, like my, my shift patterns over here, I, I do four days on and four days off. So I have two days, two nights, and then four off. That's I don't I can't say that that's super common here. And even here in the United States, there's multiple different patterns. And I think that where I work, my schedule is kind of the oddball. So we do 24-hour shifts, which is probably the only thing that unifies Uh, most departments here in the United States, but it's 24 hours. And then for us specifically, (laughs) it's really hard to describe, but it's uh, on, off, on, off, on, and then four days off. So 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, 24 off, 24 on for a total of three days. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm following yeah, like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then four days off, and then it rotates. Right, got you. Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, four days off. That's quite disruptive, isn't it? That's quite hard to have a <laughs> any kind of a social life outside of work with that. I thought mine was it's, hectic. Um, I can't really tell. I This is the only thing, the only schedule that I have ever known, and I came from a different career where it was essentially a nine-to-five job. So for me, I have way more free time than what I did for my nine-to-five job. Uh, and it's, uh, it's 
all that I've ever known and you make it work. Um, so if we kind of like, I know, I know every day is, is totally different. So it's really hard for me to kind of say what's a normal day like, but uh, in terms of scheduling, I know it's going to be totally different to how things work in, in my neck of the woods because um, it's obviously two different countries yeah. altogether, isn't it? But your normal day then, like try and run me through it a little bit so I can get a bit of an idea. So you get to work um, and presumably you have to do all the fire checks and kit checks and things like that. Yeah. So essentially we have a we have a scheduling system that is able to tell us which apparatus we're riding on that day. So engine, uh, truck, ambulance, medic unit. So we, we come in basically knowing where we're going to be riding and that kind of dictates our activities for the morning in terms of equipment checks and uh, vehicle checks and that sort of thing. So uh, me personally, I wake up really early. I do not live in the state in which I work because the state that I work in is very expensive to live in. So I wake up very early around 3.30 and then I get to work at about 5.30 in the morning, so an hour and a half prior to when our scheduled, um, I guess, shift starts. So our shifts start at 0700, so 7 o'clock in the morning, and then they end at 0700 the next the morning. Day. So yeah, yeah. yeah, a full 24 hours. Um, it's pretty much common courtesy, if you can, get there early to relieve the person that you are relieving early. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that's a, a pretty common thing that we try to do for, you know, anybody who is in similar job. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah definitely. Yeah, so uh, I get there really early, and I just came off recently, within the last two years, came off my probationary year. So I had I had a million different things to do during that time, but yeah. now it's been kind of reduced to vehicle checks and making sure that all of the equipment is there, all the medications are good, everything is within date, not expired, and then I kind of start taking care of some housework because since we live there for 24 hours, it's it's basically my second house, so we just start chores. And um, at 7 a.m., we all come to the kitchen table or our designated meeting place for a lineup, um, our officers go over any news for the day, any line of duty deaths, which is a, a thing that we kind of go over as a shift to learn from. Um, our planned training for the day, if there is any, and we go from there. Um, after that, everybody kind of goes their separate ways and continues checking whatever they were uh, checking a little bit earlier. Um, we pull all of our vehicles out of the station, make sure they're running and all of that. And, um, you know, time passes and hopefully we're running calls in the middle of all of that. And me as, uh, you know, I, I am very grateful that my shift likes to work out together. So we usually plan a workout together, uh, sometimes two, <laughs> yeah. uh, during that time, everybody sits down for lunch at lunchtime. Everybody sits down for dinner at dinner time, and, yeah, that's that's kind of how that goes. How many, like on average, how many calls might you get in a twenty-four hour period, or and what type of calls would they? Is there like a, like you said, you might be assigned a different vehicle, like a, a fire engine or a truck or a uh, like a medical vehicle. So like my average shift, for example, I do twelve hours, and I might typically do maybe five, maybe six um, calls. In, in that 12-hour period. Is, gotcha. is that like is that quite kind of a lot for you guys, or is that 
Would that um, be seen no. as? No, uh, it, even in the county in which that uh, in which I work, it it's uh, wildly different depending on where you are located. Uh, my uh, specific station is very busy, and let's be honest, most of our calls, even if we are assigned to ride the engine or the the truck, they're all. A lot of them are medical. Uh, we would probably we probably run 85 to 90 percent medical calls with some fire thrown in. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there are people who feel certain ways about that, and you know that sucks for them. But we are a medical agency who happens to be firefighters as well, so we are cross certified. So we range from any type of medical call um, to car accidents to uh, items that would require uh, technical rescue response, uh, hazardous materials response. We run fire alarms. We run actual fires, uh, structure fires, car fires, all of those things. Um, As far as our medical calls go, we kind of recently split into advanced life support calls and basic life support calls. We used to run a system that was all ALS all the time. Every single apparatus that we had had a paramedic on it. So somebody mm-hmm. at the paramedic level with an expanded you know, scope of practice. Um, due to uh, budget concerns and staffing concerns and COVID, as you were mentioning a little bit earlier, we've had to kind of play with that a little bit and basically revert to what we used to run, which was a tiered system with medic units with a paramedic on board and ambulances with two EMT level personnel on board. So that's where we're at now. And so our tiered system differentiates between BLS calls and ALS calls now. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm going to pick your brains a little bit more about that in a bit. One of the questions I had was what area do you cover and kind of how large is, is that area? For example, where I work, um, I work in the West Midlands, so that's like the the middle part of the country in England. Uh, we cover like quite a huge area, so I can, I mean, I say huge, it's, it's that um, comparison, isn't it, now from a very small country to America. But um, so my uh, area of scope probably would be, I could probably travel anywhere up to about 20, 20 to 30 miles for a call, for example. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is wild. That is not what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I used to work kind of in the uh, metropolitan city of Birmingham, which is like the second city in the UK, uh, second to London. So that that was quite busy. And with that being really densely populated, I, I didn't travel at all, really too far to jobs at all. Maybe the average travel time was three miles, four miles. Recently, I've moved out slightly more rurally, and it's a totally different ball game. We end up running maybe 20 miles to two incidents. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's that's wildly different, and I I've not heard of of anybody in my little small circle who has to do that. So that that's no. crazy. Well, neither have <laughs> I until I moved recently to this rural location, and uh, yeah, as I said, it, it's taken a little bit of getting used to, particularly when you've got a patient that is unwell. And you're having to travel with them to hospital for 40 minutes, you know, for an extended period of time. And they're, they're critical. You know, it's 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 a slightly different game of paramedic practice yeah. as opposed to, hey, ho, we're five minutes or 10 minutes away from the closest district general hospital. You're 
half an hour, 40 minutes out? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest, one of the biggest things that people kind of like, people kind of talk about is that it's really cool that we have these, these, these protocols and these scopes of practice, right? And we're allowed to do certain things, but we generally in my area are relatively close to lots of hospitals, Mm -hmm. no matter where you are. And so, you know, I'm talking maybe a 20 minute transport. If you're kind of going out of the way, maybe a 20 minute transport or otherwise like my specific area, we're five minutes and then we're there. So a lot of paramedics, you know, kind of talk about, wow, like we don't actually get to really use a lot of these skills, even though, we're allowed to. So what you're saying is it's completely wild. <laughs> yeah, it's it's recently changed and it's taken a bit of getting used to. So I said there's a lot more, uh, well, there's a lot more kind of thinking, okay, I can do this on route. I can do that on route. I can do yeah. that on route. But that's, uh, that's a recent change in my practice. As I said, I was quite similar to yourself for sort of five years up until a couple of months ago of, of being next to a hospital all the time and thinking, okay, that's cool. We can, we can just get them in. That's fine. Only five minutes around the corner, but now it's a slightly different um, thought process involved. Now you've got longer transfers. That's crazy. Yeah. My, my area is right outside of Washington, DC. Uh, so the nation's capital. And then my area is right to kind of like the, like Southwest corner, uh, mm-hmm. in Virginia. And it's, it's mainly suburban, I guess, with some rural pockets and some urban pockets. But yeah. like I said, I mean, the, the population we serve, I think, I think it's like 1.1 million people. Yeah. Um, and most places are fairly busy, uh, except for, except for probably a few, but like I said, we're, we're pretty close. <laughs> we're yeah. pretty close to hospitals. My, my particular station is located in one of the biggest cities in this district. And so it is not uncommon for us to, on the engine run 10 to 15 calls a day in 24 hours. Uh, I mean, and then it's not hours, uncommon yeah. on the medic unit to, in 24 hours, run in double digits as well. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's a yeah, it's not too dissimilar from where I am. To be fair, actually, it's probably about the same kind of thing. Uh, the next question I have, we kind of already alluded to it a little bit, but so how are um, fire EMS systems structured? So we said that you said you've got like two EMTs on a on a fire engine. Would that be right? It's okay. So I'll have to kind of break it down just a little bit because this is also, I can't speak for the rest of the country either because I know. Yeah, it's locally, isn't it? It'll be, it'll change from state to state. Yeah, it'll definitely change. And I, I think we're kind of in the minority here. Um, with the way that we do things. So, um, my system staffs, fully staffs, um, fire engines, fire trucks, uh, rescue units, hazmat units, and ambulances and medic units. So those are our fully staffed positions. On each of the fire apparatus, we have four personnel. At least one of them is a paramedic. Another one is the driver. And then there is an officer and there is a firefighter EMT. Right. So that's, I, that's kind of how that works. Um, 
there are situations in which our officers can also double as the paramedics so they can have both certifications and then in the back of the engine or the rescue you know unit you'll have two emts but basically there has to be a medic on board there has to be a driver there has to be an officer and then there has to be somebody extra essentially like a firefighter emt yeah as far as our uh, medic units go we split them between ambulances which are bls um Mm -hmm. Center. Those are two EMTs on on board, and then our medic units have one EMT driver and one paramedic officer. So that's kind of how we are structured. I I think that a lot of the countries still will run um, three personnel on their fire apparatus. Mm-hmm. We are very lucky. We have we we probably have close to fifteen or sixteen hundred personnel. So even though staffing is uh you know it's an issue it's i feel like it's an issue everywhere uh that's kind of what we're running with so can you get to work um you may have said this earlier i think just clarified you can get to work maybe on one of your 24-hour stints and they'll say okay um you know jordan you're on a fire truck today you've got these guys with you and then maybe the next shift you could be on a like a a double emt bls ambulance is that kind of basically the, the gist Essentially, we kind of, and we call it a tour. So our three days are um, are our tour, essentially. Mm-hmm. So our Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And usually, I think they try to make it so that you are on the same apparatus for an entire tour. It doesn't always work out like that. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of the way that they try to do it. And it also depends on where you're stationed at and what that particular firehouse has in terms of apparatus. So my station has an engine a tower ladder and also a medic unit so because of that i usually rotate between two of those apparatus because the third one i'm actually not qualified to ride yet um so there are certain qualifications that people need to have and it just kind of depends on where you are and what's available and how staffing looks for that day cool um you touched on it a little bit about the um tech rescue stuff the hazmat stuff uh, and those kind of capabilities that that you guys have kind of just wanted to try and discuss the differences between what you guys have over there and what we have over here i suppose so like if i know yeah. over here basically we have obviously the the regular fire services separate from the ambulance service uh, and the fire service will deal with hazmat issues tech rescues dive capabilities you know obviously height rescues and rtcs and things like that um, right. Over here, we have the the ambulance service do have their own separate kind of uh, units called the heart teams. So that's the hazardous area response teams. Okay. And that's basically like a group of paramedics that are trained in working in hazardous areas that they might need to respond to. Essentially, so they do safe working at height. They're trained to sort of um, be able to treat patients that maybe like fallen off roofs or are stuck stuck at heights and whatnot and need medical treatment. Um, They do water rescues, so they're they're like water rescue um, tech level, whatever, qualified so they can go and do all the kind of rapids and stuff. They also are hazmat qualified and they do all the uh, gas tight suit stuff as well. But they kind of, if there's an incident that requires that, they work alongside or they work to support the fire service basically. They'll, They'll be deployed to the incident with the fire service and there's there's kind of like a, a system that enables the emergency services to work together a little bit so they kind of understand what we do, we understand what they do. So the fire service yeah. will be like, cool, 
the heart team have turned up. They're the ambulance service. They're the paramedics, but they're also qualified in this. But okay, that kind of makes sense. They're they're BA trained as well, so they they're breathing apparatus trained. They can go into areas that obviously would require that. Cool. <laughs> yeah, so it's that it's quite a cool role. Um, extra training. Yeah. A, a lot of extra training. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of extra training, and kind of like it's seen as more of a specialist unit. You'd have to apply to after you've been in for a few years as a regular kind of um, paramedic already. So it's something that people tend to go on to do uh, after do a few years. Do you have to be paramedic level in order to apply for that extra training, or can you be a technician? Yeah, so you, you okay. have yeah you have to be paramedic level to be able to apply for that one. So here, okay. like where, where I work, you know, like we, it depends on what's it, it varies from kind of province to province or kind of uh, county to county, if you like. So. Where I work, we're kind of really fortunate. We have paramedics on most double crewed ambulances. So they'll normally be like a paramedic and a, and a, a technician on most ambulances, most vehicles. Uh, I know there's a lot of other providers out there that that's quite rare and they'll have a lot of double crewed um, kind of EMT technician style stuff. And if they need a paramedic, they'll get one out on the car or get you know okay. a, a, a crew out that just so happens to have a paramedic on running on that vehicle as well. And then some, you know, uh, it kind of varies from from trust or from service to service, really. I'm guessing that at, at your end of the spectrum, kind of, I'm, I'm waffling on about how things work over here, but um, cool. yeah, your end of the spectrum in terms of like uh, tech rescue, hazmat, and all that, is that something that you're having to train in as part of your core sort of firefighter EMT school, or is it like an extra specialist uh, skill set? If that makes sense. It's definitely an extra skill set. So the closest that we get at as a basic level, I am in the Fire and Rescue Academy is just awareness classes that these things exist. These are some things to look out for. Um, you know, you wouldn't really be able to fully assist on you know calls that have that specification, uh, mm-hmm. but we do get. Uh, hazmat awareness we do get kind of like a tech rescue introduction we do get an introduction to swift water and and a couple other things but if you want to pursue that track then you need to graduate finish your probationary year and then apply to one of their schools to get certified in that particular area um you can test into it, you can become a technician, and then you are assigned, ideally, to a station that has that that equipment that is required for those incidents there. Mm-hmm. So that's not something that I have specifically pursued. Um, we would still, as a you know, an engine unit or a truck unit, be dispatched on calls that require special operations. Uh, units, but we would be operating in a different capacity uh, generally from them or just assisting them in whatever it is they need to do in order to mitigate the situation. Um, the major difference between, I, I feel like, here and the, the United Kingdom, or at least the area in which, in which you're um, kind of representing right now, is that our uh, fire service and our EMS service, I am so sorry, that, that guy's really loud. Yeah, that's cool. uh, the, the fire service here and the EMS service here in this location are one and the same. So we are not, we are not 
we don't outsource ambulance services. We don't, we don't outsource any of our resources. Everybody who works in this jurisdiction is required to be able to do both mm-hmm. uh, fire and EMS. And then if they choose to pursue a specialty, they can do that on their own time. Next thing I've got on my little list of things to kind of ask about how it works over there is so like critical care capabilities. For example, if you guys were called out to a, uh, a nasty trauma, for example, a major trauma, RTC maybe, um, patient requires more in-depth scope. Over here, for example, we can get a doctor to come out on a car. They can perform emergency surgical procedures at the roadside you're pulling your face it kind of says to me tom i have no idea what you're talking about that's that's something that's new that's new to me so you are you are able to have somebody come out and do emergency procedures right there on scene is that what i'm understanding yeah so if we have a a trauma or a case that would require some advanced care or critical level intervention maybe you've got a, a young person in cardiac arrest or you've got a, a major trauma where somebody's fallen from height or you've got a shooting where the patient might need um, sort of advanced procedures before where they might need sort of RSI, um, they might need put into sleep and intubating to protect their airways or they might need, uh, you know, in the penetrating trauma side of things, they might have a, a clamshell thoracotomy. That can be done at the roadside in England. We can have doctors come out and do that if, if, if needed, if required, which is something that I appreciate might not be universal. But I just wondered if you have any any things like that that are, you've heard of around in your area or if that's something that you've totally just so not experienced. I, I ha- okay, for me personally, I am an EMT. I am working pretty consistently alongside our medical directors who are our doctors and I know that they basically add on to field calls that either sound interesting or they believe might need a little bit, a little bit more support Uh in that way. Um, I've never been on a call yet where a doctor, our, our medical directors have shown up and they've actually really put hands on a patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've not seen that. I do not know what their protocols are. I do not know if they would ever actually be able to um, perform such extensive emergency procedures. And I think that's because we are so close to hospitals. Yeah. Um, so that's a, I feel like that's a major driving factor. Our paramedics do, they can intubate, they can give, um, you know, a wide array of medications that can help sedate a person and, and those things. Um, we're not going to be on the side of the road performing surgeries or anything like that, only because our, our protocols specifically state that for a, a trauma, like you have mentioned, uh, we should aim to be off the scene and packaged up and ready to go in less than 10 minutes because that makes the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the golden hour kind of uh, yeah. protocol, yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. As far as RSI goes, I do not believe that my jurisdiction has that capability, although we are surrounded by other jurisdictions 
where their EMS supervisors, like their officers mm -hmm. that also get added on to calls, yeah, um, yeah, they sure. can do that. They do carry those capabilities. So it's just kind of hit or miss whether or not we kind of mesh or run together with another jurisdiction that has those capabilities. So, yeah, we, I mean, we're just we're so close, like I said, to hospitals that I, I don't think that well, they're... Exactly. By, the time you, by the time you've waited for somebody to come out yeah. and perform an RSI or kind of an, an emergency uh, surgical procedure that might need yeah. to be done there, and then they could be in hospital, like you said, alluded to, within kind of five, ten minutes, and is, is there then a need for that to be, you know, something that would have to be a huge resource implemented? Yes. Is it, you know, uh, you know, a rewards versus... Cons analysis would, would probably indicate no. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I, even at the EMT level, um, we are, you know, we're trained at that. You know, when when things like that happen, when <laughs> this this person is very poorly uh, poorly off, uh, essentially, we're we're expected to know our, our palliative care, our our packaging skills, our how can we mitigate this situation until we can drive them a couple miles to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where we sit with all of that. So next thing I was going to ask you, just well, you just kind of uh, alluded to a little bit what I was going to ask as well. If if you you mentioned you go to quite a few medical jobs as part of the fire service EMT system. Yeah. And you just mentioned there about palliative and things like that. As, as far as like a, an EMT scope would go with that in terms of, I don't know, leaving people at home and uh, not conveying them to hospital, that makes sense. Would Is that the kind of thing maybe you'd be like, okay, well, you know, I don't think it's appropriate to take this person to hospital, therefore I'm going to, I don't know, do you, do you be like, you know, can you get a a doctor in a community to come out and take a look at that patient and things like that. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. So it will also depend on who responds to that incident uh, as well. So in the jurisdiction in which I work at some point, there is going to be a paramedic on scene um, at least one. So if we're ever in doubt, then yes, there, you know, there is an assessment that is done by the highest level of care that is on scene to determine whether or not this is somebody whose, you know, best interest is to uh, go to the hospital or to potentially stay at home. Um, we will usually defer to the highest level of care uh, just because they're there and that's what our taxpayers pay for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there are certain patients where we, according to our protocols, will not allow them to stay at home, even if they wish to stay at home. Mm -hmm. Those types of patients include obviously those who can't make their own medical decisions, uh, suicidal patients, um, Patients who are so intoxicated that they, you know, they, they, they can't make um, informed decisions on their own behalf. Uh, and if there is ever an issue with that, uh, we kind of label them a high risk refusal and we can call out another level of care. We can call a supervisor who, who will come in their car and, 
first try to reason with a patient that they really should go to the hospital, kind of exhaust any means by that. And if it really gets to the point where a person is refusing and they are a high risk refusal that we can uh, go the route of getting an emergency custody order from the court system. Uh-huh. That takes a very long time. It's, you know, it's kind of a pain uh, to have to do that. I've only been on scene uh, where one of those was required and it took us four hours. Yeah, it they, was, they can be really time consuming cases and really gray area cases over here. We would have the uh, same kind of issues and we would say, you know, the patient lacks mental capacity to make those decisions and it's in their best interest to receive medical treatment but then we then have to weigh up whether or not that treatment is are they in need of emergency treatment i.e is their well-being in immediate danger um do they require immediate intervention and do they lack the faculties to make their own decision then you can use reasonable force to remove them from the property and that would be under we i mean we call that the mental capacity act so we i think we act upon I think it's section five or something like that of the mental capacity act which allows us to use kind of reasonable and proportionate force to remove a lot of the time to be honest it's it's uh elderly people with maybe a urine infection and they're a bit confused and they don't want to go to hospital and you can kind of coerce them to maybe sit down in a chair and just use yeah. the least restrictive methods possible, maybe wrap a blanket around them and then you can kind of get them out on a wheelchair or a stretcher or something like that, um, just using the the least invasive methods possible, I suppose. I know that's not always going to be the case and then in which case we we just have to call upon maybe police assistance sometimes if the patient's going to be a challenge. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a super gray area and it's it's one like I would hate to be in a position where I would, you know, be an, an EMT on scene. Uh, I was leading leading this call or whatever, and then I would hate to be in a position kind of questioning whether or not, like, I made the right decision to allow them to stay. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's kind of a script that we that we have to run if, you know, I'm, I'm sure you understand if somebody. Uh, diabetic emergencies are a, a pretty common one where, you know, their their blood sugar will get way too low and then they, you know, will treat them and then they'll come back and they'll be like, nope, I don't want to go to the hospital. I'm fine. This happens. Yeah. You know, yeah. so we kind of just explain, you know, you're refusing against medical, yeah. uh, against medical advice. You know, this, this is what could happen. This is what we tried to do. Uh, you can call us back at any time if something changes, but you really have to cover your bases in terms of documentation. I just, it's, it kind of, it's just like a, I don't really like awkward refusals. Cause I'm like, Oh man, maybe you should go. Yeah. It's, it's difficult, isn't it? It's, it's somewhat, I think we all kind of struggle with pre hospitally those kind of awkward uh, gray area decisions but I suppose all you can do is just act at the time you know uh, do whatever's best at that time it, it might be that later on they may not have capacity because they could have, like you said you mentioned the diabetic emergencies thing that it may well be that later on they, they lack capacity should they have a recurring episode but I suppose we've just got to do what's right for them at the time that they are deemed to be competent to make their decisions yeah, they, and a lot of the time they understand 
the risks. And I suppose there's only there's only so far we can. We you can't can kidnap them. <laughs> yeah, you can't kidnap people. <laughs> so scope of practice for your kind of level at EMT in terms of you mentioned about ALS and BLS um, over here. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's probably similar over there as well. There's like the intermediate tree ILS intermediate life support so that will be defibrillation with also the use of IGLs and things like that for airway management in terms of your scope as EMT where does where does that lead you up to and then where does um, where does it get to the point where you're like okay cool I need maybe like an advanced practitioner now to come in do you guys do defibrillation and airway management in, in the themes of IGLs yeah, so we've actually, um, I have been out of the fire academy for two and a half to three years now, so I'm, I'm relatively new still, and even in that short amount of time, a lot of the things that you're asking about have changed. Mm-hmm. So uh, BLS scope of practice has actually expanded uh, a bit since we are now running a tiered system and since BLS providers are, are taking calls now, they're, they're expected to be able to give some medications, uh, run some interventions by themselves on the way to the hospital, and then, you know, re- re- report. Yeah. Uh, we do have certain protocols that kind of, they're kind of, they're kind of in that gray area right now where we're trying to figure out the balance of ALS versus BLS and who takes what call. And at what point, like you said, do we need kind of like an ALS intervention? That's all still kind of being ironed out, but in terms of, um, I guess we can, we can kind of start with like airway management and defibrillation and stuff. Those are BLS skills, Uh intubation, is the ALS skill, yeah, but yeah. all other, all of those other skills, they're completely BLS. And so we uh, can defibrillate. We can uh, we use the IGEL system. Yeah. Uh, we recently, yeah. yes, we recently moved to that. I learned something different in my time in the academy, and mm-hmm. then as soon as I graduated, IGELs became a thing. So yeah, yeah. that is a completely BLS skill. Um, which, which is good. I, the medics that I have worked with over the last couple of years, um, prefer them just because it's an immediate, it, it's an immediate thing and they're easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that specifically is, is within my scope of practice within our BLS provider scope of practice in terms of kind of shifting toward other interventions uh, medications were still relatively limited. Uh, most of our medications are ALS, but we can give things like, and obviously oxygen, we can give um, uh, oral glucose. So yep. sugar, we can, we've um, expanded to uh, Zofran, Tylenol. Um, if we are the first on scene, we can give epinephrine in a pre-measured syringe. Tylenol or, is is an American one, isn't it? Um, yeah. Forgive me, I'm not. What what's the what is Tylenol? <laughs> it's a fever reducer, and honestly, no one uses it. So is so. it is it is it, is it uh, something a bit like paracetamol? Um, I don't think I've ever heard of that. You never heard of paracetamol? 
No. Oh, wow. Acetaminophen is the kind of proper term. Yeah, Tylenol is acetaminophen. Is it? Okay, yeah. So, yeah, great. So, yeah, Tylenol is paracetamol, which is also acetaminophen. Cool. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's madness, isn't it? Because over here, paracetamol is just like the... It's such a common such a common term, but yeah, Tylenol over there. Huh. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't use it. The The running kind of joke in, in my jurisdiction is that we don't really carry anything to actually give Tylenol with because it's a pill that you have to swallow and we don't carry water on our medic units or ambulances. So yeah. people don't really use it. <laughs> yeah. Um, don't really know how to do that. But I'm guessing you've got the, because like the tech drugs over here would be, like you said, uh, epinephrine, so like adrenaline, one in 1,000. That's like uh, mm-hmm. the kind of standard uh, yep. anaphylactic yep. asthma attack medication yeah that would be the only the only time that bls providers would be able to use that we have a kit um that is just like a pre-measured uh little vial and syringe and in that instance in that instance alone are we allowed to give it we're not allowed to give it in terms of like cardiac issues or anything like that that's an als skill for us the syringe is pre-marked with our adult dose and our and our pediatric dose and stuff like that so it's just it's kind of foolproof, but I wish it was pre-filled. <laughs> mm. I mean, that still sounds cool with the um, pediatric doses and the adult doses being marked out. Anyway, that's something that is a, a good idea. Yeah. So, you, obviously, adrenaline, then oxygen. Can you guys give um, things like aspirin, GTN? Yep. Yeah. BLS skill, so... Um throw <laughs> throw aspirin pretty much at anybody uh we can there are a couple things that we can assist with we can assist with uh drawing up als drugs if our als provider feels comfortable with us doing that we do um we can do als bls cross checks uh so once they get into their medications you know we're there to assist with whatever they need uh oh i forgot to mention uh, albuterol yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, albutamol, yeah, albuterol, yeah, and like tropium, bromide, yeah, event, exactly. yeah, they're, they're kind of like two mainstays, aren't they, as well, for um, technicians. Well, I, I was a EMT or a technician over here, as you say, before, obviously, I went on and did my sort of paramedic qualification, so a lot of what you're saying kind of rings home to, to me as well, because I obviously went through that, that process mm-hmm. before kind of, I guess, taking it further and going on and getting the extra certifications become... Uh, paramedic qualified so yeah it's uh it, it does sound very much similar to the technician structure over here actually with the kind of bls providing over there yeah it sounds like it is i'm i'm referencing our uh protocols right now as we're talking there's an we have an app yeah just to make sure i'm not saying anything yeah, wrong <laughs> we call it um over here it's called jr calc we have it's, it's a guideline developed by the what do they call it AACE? I think it's like the Associate of Ambulance Chief Executives. But it's essentially it's it's used all across the UK. So all across the UK, all the paramedics okay. are kind of bound to GR Calc guidelines, and that's kind of where we get our protocols from, where we get our um, indications and, and kind of contraindications to using these medicines for, and a bit of guidance as well. That's cool. Yes, yeah, kind of like the paramedic bible of the. Uh, of being a British paramedic over anyway. <laughs> I'm kind of coming up to kind of like the end of my questions, really. I've got a few more, but um, that's a, I'm, I'm coming up to the, kind of the last few, really. So I've got somebody off Twitter actually um, got in touch with me and asked about 
insurance and how insurance works over there. I know it's going to be a bit of a minefield question potentially, but uh, if you guys are going out to people, for example, on medical calls, uh-huh. they, over here obviously we have the NHS and anyone can call for an ambulance and receive medical care, obviously free of charge. Over there, if somebody was to call for, I don't know, a flare-up of their asthma and they, they didn't have any insurance, how does that work? <laughs> I don't mean to laugh because that's not a funny situation to be in, no, and no. I imagine that, that that happens a lot. Um, the reason I'm I'm laughing is because I'm pretty sure I've seen memes on the internet of the American healthcare system because of this exact question. And it's like morbidly sad. Um, and I can only speak to this so much just because I've, I've never personally been in a situation like this, but our patients refuse hospital care because of insurance issues. You know, I don't have insurance. I can't afford it. Um, I can't, I cannot afford the bill of number one, the ambulance ride, which Mm -hmm can number in the thousands of dollars and let alone the hospital treatment, which, you know, who, who knows how much that'll cost. Um, it's, (laughs) I wish it were different. Um, from a pre-hospital perspective, like with you guys, like is is anyone, can anyone call an ambulance and receive ambulance care? And that would be, let's say you have to go out to give somebody some salbutamol or some albuterol, for example, if they required it, but if they did not have insurance, would you still be able to provide that care, for example? Yes. Or, yeah. Yes. Uh, we we treat regardless of what anybody's financial history or, or anything is. If you need it, we will provide it. Uh, essentially, at the, at the end of a call, whether or not it ends up in a patient refusal um, or uh, – you know, they end up going to the hospital. We have our patients, if, if they are able, sign a, a document or like an iPad document. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it's a release for billing. And that is wildly out of the fire service's hands. I don't really know where what magical place that goes to or how that works once they sign off on that. Yeah. But there, we actually had a continuing education course on this exact topic because it's a topic that prevents people who need medical attention from getting medical attention because of, of whatever issue they are having financially. And that's essentially kind of how that ends up. There are ways that we can advise the hospital to assist them once we transfer care. And there are other ways that we can kind of, you know, um, assist a patient with getting the financial support that they need. I mean, whether or not, whether or not they can or can't afford it, do or do not have insurance, they're going to receive a bill and it's not going to be a pretty bill. Um, I used to have a roommate who had to go to the hospital for kidney stones, uh, just doubled over in pain with kidney stones. So he yeah. went to the hospital Nasty and the stuff. bill was ridiculous the thing that they don't really advertise is that if you turn that bill over on the back or you look <laughs> a little bit closely, then there are options uh, to basically get that fee waived or get that fee taken care of. Or, I mean, a lot of our patients are homeless. A lot of them are, um, you know, struggle with addiction and stuff like that. And I mean, 
they're they're never going to pay those bills. They're just they're just not going to pay them. So that's kind of the cost that is eaten, if you will, uh, by the you know the health organization. I don't know yeah. some magic organization up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a sad situation. No, cheers for kind of clarifying on that because it's somewhat that I have little knowledge around. I guess we're you know quite fortunate over here, I suppose, yeah. with the NHS system and that whole insurance minefield is just something I've never really had to uh, look into or do too much reading upon. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of out of official questions and, and notes to do. So, and like, you know, unless you've got anything you would like to ask me about how things work over here, I've got everything that I wanted to get. That's cool. That, that's really cool. Um, I, yeah, so I, <laughs> you mentioned that the the company that you work for is separate from your fire service. Correct. Yeah. So, and that this is like a wildly specific question. So, when you go to an incident, okay, do how many people are there? Does that make sense? Yeah, how many bodies yeah. actually show up? <laughs> so it, that would depend, I suppose, on the type of incident. So if it's just a regular medical incident yes. yeah that's just normally like one ambulance um, which obviously is double crewed so you've got two people on it oh um, my gosh <laughs> yeah somebody calls up because i think they're having a heart attack or whatever you know the run-of-the-mill chest pain that would be one ambulance with obviously a paramedic hopefully and a technician on it or it could be two technicians um yeah that that's the way things work obviously if it's a an incident such as an rtc or a fire or something like that that's a bit more multidisciplinary where you might need obviously multi-agency response police fire whatever you're going to get a heck of a lot more people just turning up to that sort of thing if it's a if it's a cardiac arrest a confirmed cardiac arrest um there will be two ambulances normally routinely sent so you'll have four people for a cardiac arrest that's a difference too. That's a that's a wild. So it's really incumbent upon your ambulance crew to radio or call for if you need more people. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. if you need more people, another ambulance will show up. Hopefully, yeah. Okay. Hopefully, yeah. That, that's that's generally the uh, <laughs> the the hoped for outcome. Yeah. If the if there is one available, yeah. Most of the time there is. Wow. Okay. So I, I just have to, so <laughs> it's, it's usually funny to hear patients or, or families of patients, right. Who <laughs> basically describe my County, like when we arrive on scene as like a clown car, because we, the people just keep coming inside the residence yeah. There's there, on every single call. There is at least six people, at least always six people. Mm -hmm. And if we need more resources, we can call for them. Uh, and so a cardiac arrest will get six people, sometimes, sometimes 10, like just for bodies. And so it, it really like, you know, when you come out of the, the, uh, fire academy you know you're you're taught to really get hands-on you're a new person like hey let me get in there um so i can practice my skills and all that and as you kind of phase away 
you know, from your probationary year, me, I'm less, I'm doing less of that now and trying to learn when to actually step back because there are way too many people here right now. There, there, like there's only so many people that can fit inside this tiny little apartment. So I'm just going to stand out here in the doorway. Yeah. It can be difficult when you've got too many people in there as well. I mean, I've got used to it being a fairly small number of cardiac arrests and I personally think about four is maybe five is kind of about the, the, the sweet spot in terms of yeah. people dealing with that um obviously around as i mentioned where, where where i work we're kind of pretty fortunate with the advanced care services you might get a car turn up um, yeah. or a helicopter land um with uh, pa- another paramedic on it who's obviously advanced a doctor and then sometimes another paramedic who's advanced so you, you could have like another three advanced practitioners turning up as well as the two ambulances there so you could then end up with about 10 people um, as well as maybe an ambulance officer might self-deploy on a car perhaps and you'll have like an ambulance officer there as well to kind of manage the scene and and, and manage the staff a little bit but that's uh, again it's kind of case by case basis um, if it's deemed to be necessary I suppose and appropriate for those guys to be turning up right Yes, and I, I do have I do have one more completely unrelated question as well. Um, I uh, recently, within the last year or so, have become very invested and very interested in how other places receive training uh, to make death notifications. I don't know if you've kind of scrolled through my Twitter account or if you've seen anything, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm always really kind of curious to see how other people and other places do that because I know here that like there's no formal training for that. And um, do you guys, especially at the paramedic level, and especially because you're rolling on scene with two people, maybe at the most, like so, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so that is some of the we get kind of like a a, a fairly minimal amount of training on that imagine Uh, that (laughs) yeah yeah we get a fairly minimal training on like the formal um side of that and it's somewhat that you i suppose you have to kind of go away in your own time over here and do some like cpd clinical personal development or or research upon in your own time you know as part of the paramedic registration over here um, i think it comes under the you know as part of my I, i pay for example you know x amount of of money a year to be to be a registered paramedic a state registered paramedic so that is my license to practice if that makes sense and as part of that requirement you are required to be up to date and um you know it's your responsibility to be up to date and knowledgeable on the latest practice and to keep up to date with evidence-based practice but it's something that i've had to do a bit of reading on because obviously with me taking on more roles in the paramedic circles and kind of moving through like mental I'm a, I'm a mentor for example for students um that are coming up through the program so i will help staff and students kind of uh develop their skills or or i'm, I'm there as kind of support that's similar we, we do similar things then yeah, yes yeah so uh i've had to kind of do reading up on this because people have said to me before you know tom how do you break bad news and it is there's a you know there's a really good actually plug i'm plugging here but there's a really good podcast by the, uh, the recess room guys that i was on about that do a, they do a whole episode on this um i think it's called breaking bad news but they they talk about and they kind of signpost to this something called the spike 
called the SPIKE acronym, and I shall... Hold on, I should get it up for you now. I think uh, I've seen it. It's one of the few that's actually out there. Yeah. There's a, there, there aren't many. Like, there's not a whole lot of resources out there that yeah, so are applicable to the pre-hospital world. So Spikes is uh, setting up um, the interview, I suppose they call it. So setting up a place where the, you know, is most appropriate, then assessing the yeah. person's perception, um, obtaining the person's invitation, giving knowledge and information to the patient, addressing the person's emotions, and then strategy and summary. But, I mean, it, it sounds really... Um, sounds very mechanical, doesn't it? Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, <laughs> it, it's kind of like, it's it's something that I've obviously had to get used to doing. I've, I mean, I've lost count the amount of times about to deliver bad news now, and sometimes it's not even ideal. It's, it can be even over the phone sometimes, maybe you have to like call relatives that are in a different country and, <sighs> and tell them, and that's even harder because you haven't got the... The humanity aspect of it but yeah i think it's 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 something that's probably good to be aware of um and i think it probably varies from person to person really i come yeah, there are I, certain I, people i would not want telling my family members that i was dead like mm, you, oh, can, yeah, you yeah. can step to the side <laughs> yeah it's it, it's one of those i just seem to have thankfully developed a bit of a my own way of doing it and but i know there are like it's a good question because there's there are different what's the word like guidelines i suppose that you can use for that sort of thing but yeah definitely go if you i mean if yeah if you're on a run or you're in a car or something like that have a listen to the recess room they do an episode called breaking bad news i think and it's it's really good it could probably explain it a lot better than i can but so, like, essentially, you did your own research because you care. Yeah, essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I that's... think, I think <laughs> learning, learning through, learning through experience as well, learning through doing it or watching other people a few times, just yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's really difficult. But if you go, yeah, I've had to go away my own time and learn how to do it because it's not someone that's taught formally as part of being a paramedic over here. That's it's it's good to know because um, we're definitely not taught either. I'm, you know, given my personal experience and, uh, you know, just how people have spoken to me, like because people in my life have died. I'm like, oh my god, everybody could really use a lesson in how mm-hmm. to talk to somebody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even like you said, like going up to like a doctor's levels and in hospitals, and the you know the way it's done in there is not always. Um, the best way of doing it and so it's it's probably somewhat that as clinicians and healthcare providers we should be well versed in it and taught so aware of. We're, just... Just, we're not <laughs> um well yeah i'm i'm all done so i suppose i shall let you get on with the rest of your uh, your rest day that's um, cool yeah thank you for the invitation I, I was very surprised no it's it's cool I, I don't have many people on my twitter that like it's growing slowly, but I don't. I don't think there's loads and loads of people from the states that listen to the show. Obviously, because it's quite a niche platform. I so, can't wait to share it. I like that. That'll be really cool. Um, mm. Thank you again. I really appreciate it, and uh, I think it'll be time to be scooting out of here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. See you later. Can't right. wait to hear it. Nice one. Cheers. <laughs> See you later. Bye bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Medic in the Middle. 
As always, if you have enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe to the podcast to receive updates of further episodes and follow us on Twitter on Twitter handle at MedicMiddle. But for now, take care and we will see you next time.